Awesome. If you've got your Bible, would you meet me in John chapter 9 this morning? John chapter 9. As our friend Joel Holmes said, I've never been happier to see people walking out of service at the beginning of my message than when I get to see junior high and high school students going to Bridge Youth. We love seeing it every single week. Parents, well done. Good, good job bringing your students to church, getting your kids in church and having them grow up with a fellow, with like-minded community of faith people that they can grow with and do life with together. Hey, in John chapter 9, we're going to conclude a little two-part mini-series that we started last week called Miracles and Mindsets. Miracles and Mindsets. John chapter 9 completely revolves around a very specific healing miracle that Jesus did in his ministry. And this miracle takes place because of Jesus encountering a man that scripture says was blind from the time that he was born, blind since birth. And this man is standing there having no idea that Jesus is coming to him and Jesus is getting close. But the first thing that we talked about last week was how Jesus saw him even when he could not see Jesus. And this is a reflection of our salvation. For all of us who first encountered God, God saw us when we did not see him. God came to us when we could not go to him. And even though this blind man had no idea that Jesus was drawing near, he didn't know that his life was about to be changed because Jesus saw him even when he didn't see Jesus. It's a cool thing that we can all celebrate. In fact, we talk about how... From Scripture, our response of love toward God from 1 John is that he loved us first, so therefore we look back at him in love, recognizing that he saw us before we saw him. But of course, before that miracle takes place, the disciples stand from a distance, and they see this blind man, this man who was blind since birth, and they look at him almost like he's kind of like a theological science experiment. They say, well, what is it that happened to this man? What did he do? What did his parents do that he would be born blind? And, of course, Jesus quickly responds, and he says he did nothing, his parents did nothing. This happened so that the works of God could be revealed in him. And immediately, Jesus challenges a mindset. And within that question that the disciples asked, we also tackled a couple of other big topics. The first one is the topic of generational curses. We see all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 5 that there are generational curses that were attached to people who had chosen not to follow God. So therefore, some of the, the, the repercussions of a life of walking my own path would follow generationally family members later on. And of course, we see, and we didn't talk about this last week, but actually in Jeremiah 31, we see this prophecy of Jesus coming, and no longer will the sins of the Father be accounted to their children. So Jesus arrives here on the scene, and he identifies himself quickly as the curse breaker. The disciples saw this man as a cursed man because of his sin or his parents' sin, but Jesus throws that out the window and says, I don't want to talk about curses, I'm here to break curses. And I want to remind every single person that's here today, you might be in a place in your life where you are struggling with something that was handed to you by mom and dad. If you are in Christ, that thing that your mom and dad struggled with does not have to be a struggle for you. That thing that grandma and grandpa dealt with that got passed on to mom and dad that maybe is a challenge for you in this day, you don't have to live a cursed life. God is here to break generational curses off of your life because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's early and I'm already getting excited. All right. The other side of what we talked about in this equation was how the disciples sat back from a distance and looked at this man almost piously. Well, what happened that he would be born in this condition? And Jesus also deals with abstract theology. That's the dehumanizing of someone and treating them like they're a theological lab rat. Jesus looked at this man for his condition and had compassion upon him. He didn't sit back and look at him from a distance and say, well, how can we judge this situation and condemn this man for something that's happened to him? No, he had compassion upon him. He brought healing and relief 
to his situation. And we talked about how God doesn't want us to dehumanize others and look down upon others. Why? Because God has saved all of us and he loves all of us equally. And then, of course, what happens next is that Jesus does something really unusual. He reaches down and he spits in the dirt. And he makes a mud or a paste out of it. And scripture says that he takes that paste and he doesn't just place it in this man's eyes. The specific language here is that he anoints the man's eyes. In other words, he did a very specific thing because that word anoint means to place and distribute. To place and distribute. He didn't just put it on his eyes. He anointed him with the healing power of God. But of course that divine healing didn't happen. It didn't come to fruition until that man was obedient to Christ's command to go down to the pool of Siloam and wash. And scripture says that he washes his eyes and he comes out seeing. And he runs back and he testifies to Jesus of the miracle that Jesus has done in his life. And it's this amazing, miraculous story that plays out and it's so cool. But the rest of the passage is really difficult to read because everybody else responds very poorly to this miracle that's just happened in this man's life. And the rest of the passage is about everybody else's response, or more specifically, their mindsets, their mentalities. We said this last week, and I want to reiterate it again today. When Jesus performed miracles in people's lives, it would change the outcomes of their life. But when Jesus challenged mindsets, he did it not just to change their outcome, he did it to change their outlook. Because I don't hold control of the outcomes of life in my hand, God does. But what I do control is my outlook. Do I have an outlook of faith? Do I have an expectation of faith? Do I believe that God can do the things that he said that he would do? If I can believe it, I don't have to be responsible for the outcome. I can place the outcome in his hands and just manage what God has given me, which is my outlook of faith, believing that God will be faithful. Amen? Now, with that said, I want to take a look at some more mindsets that we see unfold throughout the rest of this passage. Because it's pretty crazy the way that people respond through these different mindsets and lenses according to their experience when this man comes back seeing. Okay? So let's keep reading today and let's look at a few mindsets that we see pop up. Because I think this gives us some some instruction on the kind of believers, the kind of Christians that God is calling us to be and how we interact with the work he is wanting to do in other people's lives. John 9, let's read from verse 8. It says, Therefore the neighbors, everybody say neighbors. The neighbors and those who previously had seen that this man was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, Well, he is like him, but he himself said, I am he. Now that's a really funny sentence right there because think about this for just a minute. This guy comes back seeing and it says that his neighbors stand there and say, Is that him? Well, it kind of looks like him. Others say, I'm not really sure. And then he's standing there like, hey, guys, I'm standing right here. You don't have to talk about me. It was me. I used to be blind, but now I can see. And the neighbors are skeptical about what's happened in his life. Look at verse 10. Therefore they said to him, how were your eyes opened? Finally, in verse 11, he answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam. And wash. So I went and washed, and I received my sight. So this says right here that after this man was healed, after he comes back testifying of his healing, and now he can see, the first people that he encounters are these neighbors that come to him. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had good neighbors in my life, and I've had bad neighbors in my life. I prefer to have good neighbors, but this man has some negative neighbors. And when I read this story, it kind of encourages me or shows me the kind of neighbor I need to be and the kind of neighbor that I don't want to be. Now, as I read through this, I want to just take a moment and talk a little bit about neighbors for a second and the kind of neighbors that we can or can be, should be, shouldn't be, okay? 
When I read this passage, I see three types of neighbors, all right? First of all, there's nosy neighbors. Has anybody had a nosy neighbor? Like, these are the neighbors that, like, they, they talk on the surface like they're here to help, but really they just want to know your business. As you're talking, they're peering over your shoulder into your garage. They're watching the way that you do or do not discipline your kids. They're watching how you live your life. They're looking at your things, your stuff, whatever, you know, and they're looking to see what's going on. And then as soon as they walk away from you, you see them walk away talking to somebody else, and you wonder, what are they talking about? Are they talking about me? They ask a lot of questions. They want to know what's going on with my business, but we hardly know each other. I think we all know what it's like to have nosy neighbors. All right, so quick question about this, okay? How many of you have or use the Nextdoor app? All right, see, some of you are like, I don't even know what that is. God bless you, you're better off. <laughs> the Nextdoor app can be way handy because I can find out about things that are happening in my neighborhood. Somebody can reach out to me and say, you know that thing that happened down the street where the cops came and they blocked off the road? Yeah, that was because, oh, that's why that, I was so curious. I didn't know. Or, hey, just a heads up, this has been going on in the neighborhood. Just keep your eyes open. Sometimes it can be super handy. But can I just be honest with you? There is all kinds of junk that pops up on the Nextdoor app that when I see it, I'm like, if these people live next door to me, then I need to move. <laughs> We've got some nosy neighbors. And sometimes it's like, it's very gossipy, talking about things that are going on in the neighborhood, things that are happening with the HOA, we've got to kick that president out. And da, da, da. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> nosy neighbors. And we all know what that's like. I'm not here to rant about the HOA. I'm just... <laughs> Everybody knows what it's like to have those nosy neighbors. Like, you have a couple of conversations and you realize that those things that you said get regurgitated in the wrong way to other people and pretty soon you're like, I ain't talking to them no more because we all know what it's like to have nosy neighbors. But what about this? What about the opposite? What about non-existent neighbors? These are the people that are there but you don't even know they're there. These are the people that when you pull up into your driveway and you get out of your car and you see that they're pulling up into their driveway and getting out of their car, you're like, hey, how's it going? And they're like, oh, look, look. And they just kind of run off because they don't want to be known. They don't want to know you. You've lived there for five years and you do not know their name. If something happened at your home, if you needed help, if something came up in the middle of the night, you're certain they're not going to go over there because they've never even introduced themselves to you. They don't want to be in community with you even though they live next door. I mean, they don't want to know you. They're the non-existent neighbors. They might as well not even be there. Again, those are the neighbors that you live next door to for five years and you've never met them. You don't know their names. But then there's a third kind of neighbor, and that's the noble neighbor. They're not nosy. They're not trying to be in your business. And unlike the non-existent neighbor, they're there, but they're not trying to overstep their boundaries. They're the noble neighbor that says this. Hey, here's my name. Here's my number. I live next door. I live right over there. Hey, it's good to meet you, and I'm so glad that you guys live here. If you ever need anything, I'm around. If you need help... If I got something you need to borrow, whatever, I'm here. It's cool. Just come help me. No big deal. You can call me. You can knock on the door. It's all good. I'm just here to help. They're not being nosy. They're not being non-existent. They're somewhere in the middle just available to help. Those are the kind of neighbors that everybody needs. How many of you have like a neighbor that you're like, man, I got neighbors that I love. We go to their house. They come to our house. We have barbecues. We have block parties. How many of you have neighbors from hell? Like they've called the cops on you, you've called the cops on them, even though nobody's broken the law, you're just easily agitated, you don't like each other. I see those posts on Nextdoor app, let me just tell you now, like I know <laughs> that that goes on. 
What's funny about this blind man who was healed and can now see is that as soon as he is healed, it's like he hasn't even had time to figure out what he's seeing. Remember, he's never been able to see. He's looking around, and he's only heard about mountains, but now he can see mountains. He's touched water, but now he can see the water. He's heard about the beauty of God's creation, but now he can see it with his own eyes. Suddenly, his other senses can relax a little bit because it's taken some pressure off now that he can actually see what's going on around him. Imagine that. As he's trying to figure out what's happening around him, the very first things that happen is the neighbors come and they're like, what's going on? Oh my gosh. And they're getting all nosy in his business trying to figure out what happened. And how did it happen? And are you the same guy? I kind of recognize you, but I kind of don't. How did this happen? How can this be? I don't even know what happened. What, what's going on? And the neighbors suddenly come up, and it's almost like rather than helping him figure out what's going on around him, they start bombarding him with questions. Rather than encouraging him toward what God has just done for him and what God wants to continue to do in his life, they just show up and start asking questions. And it occurs to me that in our walk with God, God is going to bring people into our world who are new in their faith. They don't have all the answers. God has recently started doing something major in their life, and what we need to do for them is be the best kind of neighbors we can be. We need to be noble neighbors that are here. We're not overstepping our boundaries, but we're available. If you need to call, if you need to knock on the door, you can come to me. If there's something you need, I got it. I'm here to help. I'm happy to help. I'm a noble neighbor. And the reason why I'm saying all this today is because these neighbors are the first ones to come to this man. They've probably known him for a long, long time. You would think that they wouldn't have to ask whether or not that's really him. But there's a few things about this that pop up that are very interesting, okay? Now, I want to talk about this for just a minute because this word neighbor, it actually appears four times. This specific Greek word for neighbor appears four times in the New Testament. One of them is here, and two of the other three are in Luke chapter 15. Now, Luke 15 is the famous passage that it talks about lost things, okay? We have the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. In the, in the first story, Jesus says that the good shepherd leaves the 99 sheep to go and find the one that is lost. And when he finds him, he brings him home. And what does he do? He calls his friends and his neighbors and says, come and celebrate me. Come and celebrate with me because I have found that which was lost. The very next story, Jesus says that there's a woman who has 10 coins. She loses one. She sets the nine aside. She goes looking for the one. She scours the house. She shines a light. And as soon as she finds that coin, what does she do? She calls her friends and her neighbors, and she says, come and celebrate with me because that which is lost has been found. And what's so cool about this is that the majority of the time in which that word is used in the New Testament, it correlates with celebration. In other words, when we as the people of God see God doing an awesome work in somebody else's life, it's not up to us to ask all the questions to figure out what God's doing. It's up to us to celebrate that person and the fact that they are on the path with God. And sometimes God brings people into our life where we see the work that he's begun and we see the distance that they still need to go. (laughs) Like, man, God started on you, but you got a long way to go. Well, guess what? It's not up to me to ask all the questions of how you're going to get there. It's up to me to encourage the person that God brings into my life. To be a noble neighbor, not a nosy neighbor, not someone who's in their business all the time, not a non-existent neighbor who's absent and doesn't care. Guess what? God does not want you to do your Christian walk by yourself. But he wants me to be a noble neighbor who encourages the, the, per, the people that he brings into my life so that they can be everything that God has called them to be. A couple other things I want to say about this before we move on. I feel like I spend a lot of time on neighbors here, but this is important to say. This man's neighbors hardly recognize him because they had previously only known him for his infirmity. Think about that. They only knew him as the blind man. 
Now he shows up and he can see, and it's like they don't even know him. You know what this says to me? This says that as the people of God, we need to be very careful not to label people for who they were. We need to believe in them for who they can be. And sometimes in church life, we're so good at this, man. We're so good at looking, oh, that's the person that got uh, delivered from drug addiction, bless God. And we only know them, that's the person that used to be on drugs. In the story, these people like don't even recognize him because now he can see. So rather than celebrating his sight, they're looking backwards, not forwards. I could tell the testimony myself that when I got serious with God and God started going to work on me, the friends that I was closest with, they didn't recognize me anymore. And you know what? That was a good thing because it meant that God was bringing about change in my life. It meant that I was now walking in a new direction. I wasn't walking in my old ways. I wasn't living my sinful lifestyle. I was walking toward God. I was walking in his plans and in his purposes. And when you start walking with God and the people that you used to walk with don't recognize you anymore, that's not a bad thing. But we need to be the kind of neighbors that are noble and we encourage those people in their walk rather than discourage them and cause them to stop walking with God. Amen? So you would think that this man's neighbors would be excited, that they would be celebrating. You would hope that this man's neighbors would look out for him and for his best interests. But instead, they do the worst thing possible. They don't understand what God has done in his life, so they take him to the Pharisees. They take him to the religious people. Now, I'm just going to throw it out there and say it. How many of you know that when the uber-religious people get involved, that's when things get messy? I mean, all Jesus did was see him, approach him, do something a little unusual to anoint his eyes. Suddenly he's seeing this man has a miracle happen in his life. His friends and neighbors can't figure out what's going on. So maybe we can figure it out if we take him to the religious people because the religious people have all the answers. Now again, this is a Jewish community. The synagogue was the center of Jewish life. So I'm not saying that to put it down. But I'm saying that the religious people get involved here and things get even worse. Now suddenly there's all these other questions that get thrown into the mix. Look what happens next in verse 13. So they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Now that scripture right there tells us what the problem is. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Verse 15. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. I love how he condenses that answer. I don't know, but this is what happened. Verse 16, therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who was a sinner, because he hasn't kept the Sabbath, do such signs? And there was a division among them. Verse 17, so they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him because he opened your eyes? The blind man said, he must be a prophet. Finally, verse 18, but the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. Now, we're going to talk about that next, but let's just stop right here for a moment and talk about what's going on. Because they've come to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees have thrown up all these religious rules and regulations trying to figure out who Jesus is and how it is that he could have done this. And their first inclination here is to say that Jesus must be a sinner. Why? Because he worked on the Sabbath. Now, 
they have a leg to stand on here going back to the Old Testament because, you know, the Sabbath, Shabbat, it goes all the way back to God creating in six days, resting on the seventh. The fourth of the Ten Commandments is you shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And so the whole idea behind this was that there is a time that God has given us to work, but then there is a day where we are to rest. God has given us this day of rest to bring balance to our life. And so they see that Jesus has worked on the Sabbath by bringing healing, by doing a miracle and healing this man. And so they look at Jesus as a sinner because of this one thing that he's done. And we don't have time to get into this, but this part of the story is so rich because the Pharisees missed something that's so obvious. When we look at this, it's easy to ask questions. Well, did Jesus sin here? Did he work on the Sabbath? What was the deal? See, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is our Sabbath. Jesus didn't break the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. Because the Sabbath is meant to give us rest. And when Jesus came to this man and brought healing to him, this picture here, this miracle, is a microcosm of Jesus bringing rest to this man in the most tumultuous situation of his life. And so that is a fulfillment of Christ, our Sabbath. It's a small picture of this work that Jesus did, Jesus being our Sabbath. He didn't break the law. He fulfilled the law for us. But the Pharisees are hung up on this, and they're struggling, and Sometimes when people come into, into to church, when they come into our life, when they come into their walk with God in their beginning, it's really easy for us to look at them and wrap rules and regulations around them that make it difficult for them to walk out their relationship with God. And we have to be very careful about this. Now, with that said, I just want to identify, I'm being playful here, but I'm being half serious. I think there are two types of people that we sometimes encounter in church. There are religious people, and then there are real people. Religious people are the ones who care about what things look like on the outside, but real people know I'm not perfect, but I got a Savior that lives on the inside, and he walks me through my imperfection. He walks me through my day-to-day. He walks with me. He leads me. He guides me. I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. I'm not perfect. I just walk this thing out being led by God, knowing that I'm forgiven, so therefore I walk forward boldly. There's religious people, and then there's real people. The Pharisees struggled to accept Jesus as the Messiah because of the issue of the Sabbath. The Pharisees couldn't see it because they were trapped in their traditions. Now, one more time, God brings people into our life that are new in their faith, and they need to be encouraged. And here's what I want to share with you. New believers don't need religious people in their life. They need real people in their life. They don't need to be told what they can and can't do. They need to be shown how it is they can walk successfully with God. Not be told. They need to be shown. Walk with them. Don't tell them where to go. They don't need religious people. They need real people. New believers don't need our traditions. They need God's truths. There are a lot of traditions that we hold to in church that are wonderful traditions. And a lot of them are given to us by God as if it was God saying, do this, adhere to this, hold on to this, and don't break these traditions. But sometimes we can come up with our own customs and our own traditions, and we can give that to other people thinking that they are boundaries that keep them right with God. Only God's truth is going to lead somebody into everything that he has for their life, not our traditions. And guess what? With every generation, traditions change. But our God, he never changes. New believers don't need our traditions. They need God's truth. So that's what we've always needed from the beginning. Every generation has needed from the beginning of time. And finally, new believers need to know how to be more like Christ, not more like us. I think sometimes what we do, especially in church life, is people come in and they're trying to figure out their walk with God. And what we do is we say, well, act like me. Wear Christian t-shirts. Listen to Christian radio. 
Carry your Bible with you everywhere that you go. And like the first Bible someone gave you weighs like 25 pounds, and suddenly you feel like, dude, I got this religious walk going on, but I don't feel any closer to God. That's because new believers don't need to know, they don't need to, um, they need to understand how to follow Jesus, discover his truth. They don't need our traditions, they need truth. And it's so important that we don't try to make them more like us, but we help them become more like Christ, developing their own relationship with God in the process. I want to give you something to think about today. I remember a few years ago I had, um, actually it was my uncle, he challenged me on this one day when we were having a conversation, just talking about church life. And he said, I'm going to give you three words. He said, if somebody comes into the church, somebody that's new comes into the church, somebody that's new comes into your life, I'm going to give you these three words. I want you to put them in order of the order in which they should go. I said, okay. And these are the three words. Believe, behave, belong. What order should those three words go in? Should somebody have to believe before they can become a part of the church and be a part of the church? Should someone behave and act like Christians act, like they're a finished product at step one in order to belong to the church? Or do they belong before they ever believe and they ever behave? It's an interesting question, but I'll be really honest with you, and I'll say it to you this way. I think Jesus, he was someone who allowed everybody to belong. He included, he gathered, he pulled people in, he dined with people, and he got criticized for it too. Because he spent time with people who did not know how to believe in him and who certainly did not behave like him. But they belonged, and therefore they loved Jesus. Now, I know that as soon as I say that, that brings up another question. Some people are saying, does that mean that God accepts everybody as they are, unrepentant, and that you don't have to live a repentant lifestyle and experience the new birth? Oh, no. God extends grace so that we can walk in truth. John said this in John chapter 1. He said that we beheld him, we saw him with our own eyes, as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you know what that means? That means that Jesus extended grace to those who followed him and were around him so that they could discover God's truth for their life. Oftentimes we get that backwards when we get religious. What we tend to do is we give people a whole lot of truth and we don't say it in grace. I remember my pastor said one time a few years ago, he said that grace is the anesthesia that goes before the scalpel of truth. How many people like to go to the dentist and have him turn that drill on before the anesthesia is kicked in? That's why God gives us grace. That's why God gives us grace. It's the kindness of God that draws men to repentance. So that we experience his grace, which allows us to walk into truth. Sometimes we tend to be all truth and no grace. But listen, sometimes we tend to be all grace and no truth, and that's just as wrong. All grace and no truth will lead us into rebellion, and that is a, that's a counterfeit version of a relationship with God, where God is all grace and no truth. No, no, no. God extends grace to you because he wants to see you be the better person than you are right now. He wants to walk you into his ways. He wants to walk you into his truth. God extends grace so that we can then discover his truth. He can change us. He can mold us. He can shape us from the inside out. But we have to understand that it's our responsibility. It's our responsibility not to be religious people, but to be real people with those who are starting out in their walk with God. Man, when I look back in my walk with God, I'm so grateful for some people who were real with me. They didn't give me rules and regulations and say, well, you can't come to church dressed like that. They included me. They accepted me. They pulled me in, made me feel as though I belong. And with that grace being extended to me, it was so much easier to discover God's truth for my life. Can I just encourage you with this today? God wants to bring people into your life that you can encourage, but in order to do that, he needs you to not be religious. He needs you to be real. Can we be real people? Come on, can we be real people? Not stuck in religion, not stuck in rules and regulations. 
God has truth for our lives, but he extends grace to us so that we can discover it. Now, the next thing that I want to show you here is first we see the neighbors, then we see the religious people, and after the neighbors seem to be questioning this man's experience with Jesus, and after the religious people make this whole ordeal even more confusing, you would think the safest place for this man to go would be to go back to his family, because his family will be there for him. They'll stand with him. They'll pray with him. Come what may, no matter what you're up against, no matter the obstacle, I can always go back to family, right? Because my family's always going to be there for me. But look at what happens next in verse 19. And they asked them, saying, this is talking about this man's parents, as we referenced in verse 18. Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. This is a really ridiculous line of questioning right here, by the way. They're asking the man's literal parents, is this your son? And what are they going to do? Say, no, this isn't our son? Yes, they know who their son is. We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But what by excuse me, but by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age. Ask him, he will speak for himself. So they're saying this is our son, but when it comes to what happened with Jesus, this whole healing thing, who gave that man the power to do that? We're washing our hands of that because we don't want to be held responsible for our son doing something crazy here and sneaking off and getting into some weird religion. And why did that happen? Verse 22 tells us. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. What's interesting about that is, you know, the synagogue was kind of like the center of Jewish life and Jewish culture there. So it wasn't just a religious exercise to go. When we think about the synagogue in Scripture, it was not at all the way Christians view church in America in the 21st century. It was something that we were a part of fluently, continually. Our community was there. It wasn't a come-and-go thing once a month or twice a year or whatever. It was a center of life. (laughs) Laugh. Take a deep breath. What's funny about that, though, I was saying that because some of you are like, oh, my gosh, I don't go to church enough. That's what he's trying to say. Take a deep breath. But this was the center of life, and the idea of being cast out or excommunicated from the synagogue meant that they were being pushed out of, like, their right standing with God in other people's eyes. And so they said, yes, this is our son. By how this happened, we don't know. Just ask him. So it's like they're taking this responsibility. They're not standing by him with his experience. They're not encouraging him to take steps forward in God. They're saying, eh, go talk to him and figure it out. We're too afraid of being cast out of the synagogue. The reason why this stands out to me is because it really hits me that there are two kinds of family that most of us have, two kinds of family members. We have flaky family members, and we have faithful family members. And family's a funny thing, because one of the things that I've discovered about family over the years is that family can fight like it's nobody's business. Have you noticed this? Like some of your biggest fights happen within the family, not outside of the family. Like family knows how to use the words that sting. Family knows how to use the words that hurt. Family can throw darts the way that nobody else from outside can. And what's funny about that is that the word family is actually the root word of the word familiar. Because we can become so familiar with one another that it's so easy to hurt each other bad. And family knows how to fight. Family can fight like cats and dogs. But have you ever noticed that if somebody from outside of the family comes after someone inside the family, the whole family turns and now you've got to fight all of us. You guys know, is that for me? Just kidding. You guys know how this is, because we all know what it's like to deal with this kind of stuff with family. 
And sometimes we can have family members that will say, I'll be with you. I'll stand with you. I'll always have your back. But when the rubber meets the road and things get tough, they're not there when we need them. Even our own family members. And it's terrible when that happens to us. But what's crazy about it is that as this happens in this man's life, he begins to understand that maybe God's calling me into a different family. Let me show you something. John chapter 1 and verse 11. This is John writing about Jesus coming to this earth. John says, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. That was talking about how Jesus being sent to his own people, the Jews, his family, and they did not receive him. But as many as received Jesus, to them, Jesus gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And what that is saying is that Jesus knew personally what it was like to be rejected by his own kind, his own family. But at the same time, as many as would receive Jesus, he gave them the right to become a part of a whole other family, the family of God. And so we might be at a place in our life and in our faith where even our own family members have rejected us because we've chosen to follow Jesus. But guess what? There's a whole other family that's right here ready to embrace you because guess what? Me and you, we're eternal family. We are kingdom family. And we need to work on embracing each other right now. We need to be faithful family to one another, not flaky family to each other. When God brings people into our life who are new in their faith, who are trying to figure this thing out, who are trying to walk it out, and they don't know what to do, choose to be faithful family, not flaky family. I'm here for you. The door is open. Here's my phone number. Here's my email address. You can reach out. It's cool. Call me. There's always a space for you. I got you. Why? Because we're a part of the family of God. I thought of this while you're speaking in first service. It really hit me. There are a lot of us that have family members on this earth right now, blood relatives, our family of origin that we love, but maybe they haven't made that decision to invite Christ into their life. And sadly, we're not going to spend eternity with them unless things change. But there are people on this earth right now that we don't yet know very well who are a part of that eternal family, and we need to embrace each other. We need to give some love to each other. Why? Because we're going to spend all of eternity together, so we might as well start now. Amen? Let's be faithful family members encouraging others in their walk with God. And so much more that we could say about that. But as we draw it into the message here, one of the things that happens next, and I'm going to summarize this because of time, but the very next thing that happens is the Pharisees take the man aside and essentially they try to get him to deny Christ, to deny Jesus' power. Is this man the Messiah? Is he the Christ? They try to get him to do that and say that it was the work of God through Jesus that made this happen, that made this miracle possible. And it becomes this theological argument and when this man won't deny Christ, when he gets tired of answering all their questions, when they're asking questions that he doesn't know the answer to, the man simply says something very profound. He says, look, I don't know the answer to all of your questions. Here's what I do know. I once was blind, but now I see. Now stand here today, and I know I'm the pastor that's up here, but there's a lot of things of God. They're the mysteries of the universe, the mysteries of God, things from Scripture that I don't fully have my head wrapped around. And I don't have all the answers to all of life's biggest questions. I just know the one who does. And when I stand here today and look back at my own past, man, there's so many questions that I might ask about my life and so many questions that you might ask about yours. And even if I don't have the answers, if I'm in Christ, the one answer I can give is I once was blind, but now I see. And if God did that, then what else does he have for my life? And that's the position that this man finds himself in. 
But because he will not deny Christ, the very next thing that happens is these Pharisees kick him out of the church, the synagogue. They kick him out of that fellowship. He's no longer allowed there. He's no longer welcome there. So imagine this. Jesus does this great work in his life. He heals him. He shows him the character and the nature of God. But his neighbors aren't helpful. The Pharisees and religious people aren't helpful. His own family isn't helpful. And it seems like he would be so discouraged to try to continue walking out this relationship with God or discover who Jesus is. But here's the beauty of knowing Jesus. When everybody else has failed him, Jesus goes around all of those failures, and Jesus comes to him personally. Finally, look at verse 35, and we'll read the end of this passage. It says that Jesus heard that they had cast him out of the synagogue. And when, they had found, when he had found him, Jesus said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? He's still discovering who Jesus is. And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And there's your salvation moment right there. Finally, verse 39. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. And it was almost as if as this man walked out this journey after he gained his sight, he was blind, but now he sees. He needs faith. He needs hope. He needs encouragement. And everybody who could see was blind to what Jesus was doing in his life. Why? Flaky family. Not real people, religious people. Not noble neighbors, nosy neighbors. Non-existent neighbors. I think back on my walk with God, and I'm so grateful that God surrounded me with friends and neighbors that would encourage me in my walk. When I think about the family that God put in my life, listen, when I first started, like, discovering my calling and what God had for my life, I had one friend. His name was Steve, and he invited me to his connect group. I was 30 minutes late because I was flaky. And he waited outside of that coffee shop for me to get there and included me in and welcomed me in. And I met some of my best friends that night who have still been friends to me to this very day. And they're not just friends. They've become family to me. Why? Because someone saw value in me. Somebody cared. Somebody said, I'm not going to be a flaky family member. I'm going to be a faithful family member. I'm not going to be a nosy or non-existent neighbor. I'm going to be a noble neighbor. I'm available. My door is open. Here's my phone number. Call me. I'm here to help. And God is calling each and every one of us to be that. But I'll tell you what, sometimes we can get so self-absorbed in our Christianity that we miss the opportunities that are all around us. When we do that, we neglect to help somebody take their next steps with God. Can we make that decision today to be faithful friends? Can we make that decision to be noble neighbors? Can we cast aside the spirit of religiosity and just be real with each other? Not make it about rules and regulations. Yes, God wants to walk people into better things that he has for their life. But if we extend grace, we can really help people discover God's truth. Amen? Amen. Let's be that church. Let's be those kind of people in our everyday lives. As we wrap right now and close, I want to pray two prayers. I want to pray for every single person who's here today. I'm just going to say it very boldly. Maybe you're here and you are not in a relationship with God. I want to pray for you. Maybe you've made a decision not to be in a relationship with God. Maybe you've said, I'm not ready for that. I'm not sure about that. I'm here today, and I'm interested in God and checking him out and kind of window shopping, but eh, commitment, I don't know. I want to pray for you today because I believe that God's plans for you are better than your plans for you. And I believe that God wants to erase all the junk of the past and walk you into the bright future that he has. But then the other prayer I want to pray is, 
if we're truly Christians, God will always be bringing people into our life that he wants us to encourage and impact for his kingdom. We might not know what to say, but we can make a decision to encourage them toward God, not hinder them from a walk with God. I want to pray for strength, that God would just empower people today to be who he's called us to be, to encourage others in Christ. So would you just bow your heads with me this morning? If you're here today and you feel as though you are not in a relationship with God or you've never made a decision to commit your life to Christ, I want to tell you how much God loves you. God loves you so much that while we were broken, while we were sinful, while we were lost and separated from God, he saw past your sin and your brokenness. We couldn't come to him. He came to us. And he sent his best, Jesus, in exchange for our worst, our sin. Jesus came to this earth, lived this life, a sinless life, making him the only acceptable sacrifice for our sin, went to the cross and died a death that we deserved for our sin so that we could be forgiven. And if, if we put our faith in that sacrifice, we could discover his salvation. But what's so cool about it is that God went a step further and didn't just offer salvation and forgiveness to us. Three days after Jesus died, he raised him from the dead, conquering death, hell, and the grave so that you and I would not have to face it in eternity. That's how much God loves you. If you've never given Jesus the opportunity to come in and become your Lord and Savior, I want to tell you today that he died for that opportunity. Would you make a decision to follow him today and accept him into your life? If you want to do that, I want to lead you in a prayer right now. We're going to pray it all out loud together. We're not going to embarrass anybody or put anyone on the spot. We're going to give you an opportunity to make a commitment in your heart with your words. Nothing magic about my words. What's significant is the commitment that you make in your heart. Let's just pray this prayer right out loud with eyes closed, heads bowed. Say it right out loud, all of us together. Say, Jesus, I thank you for what you have done for me. I believe you're the son of God. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you were raised from the dead, giving me new life. So today, I put my faith in you. I put my hope in you and my trust in you. From this day forward, I will walk with you. You will be my father. I will be your child. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. And with heads bowed for just one more moment, maybe you're here today and you've got people that God has been sending into your life and you don't have the words you don't have the wisdom, you don't have the experience, but yet you have this opportunity. You might be saying, God, why me? God, why have you put me in this workplace? Why have you brought these people into my life? Why are these people asking me these questions? God, why have you brought this person into my life? I feel like there's more going on. God, why are this conversation happening? God, why did this possibility arise? Again, you might not feel like you have the words. You might not feel like you have the wisdom or the experience. All you need to do is help people take a step toward God, and you will be amazed to see what God will do in and through your life. God, strengthen these people today. Give them your words. Your word declares that he who lacks wisdom can ask from you, and you will give it liberally. You are all-knowing. You know all things. You know exactly what we need in the people who you brought into our life. You know what they need as well. So give us your words, not our words, your words. Give us your thoughts. Give us the mind of Christ. Give us your wisdom to speak life to the people that you've brought into our world, that we may encourage them. God, we know that we are not their savior. You're simply using us to bring them closer into a relationship with you. 
pray that this week, God, as those people walk across our path, that we would recognize that these are God appointments. These are divine appointments. You're not asking us to have magic words. You're asking us just to simply encourage them toward you. We choose to say yes to those opportunities this week. Strengthen us. Show us how to be your vessels. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, listen, if you made that decision to follow Christ today, if you were part of that first prayer, if you committed your life to Christ, we just want to help you start your walk with God. And listen, we're going to be done in three minutes. Everybody hang tight, okay? Three minutes. But if you made that decision to follow Christ, we just want to help you start your walk with God. We want to give you a simple book. This is a very important moment for those of you that made that decision, so please take advantage of this, okay? We want to give you a tool called The Next Seven Days, and there's a couple of different ways that you can get it to help you start your walk. At the end of the service, against these two side walls down here on the floor, we're going to have prayer teams that are here to pray with you. Maybe you need special prayer today. Anybody can come up to them and ask for prayer. But if you made that decision to follow Christ today, just walk up, let them know you made that decision. You want to get the book, they'll give it to you. We don't need anything from you. We're just happy to help get you started in your walk with God. If you're watching online, you can click on the link that's right there in your browser, and we will get in touch with you so that we can send you the next seven days as well. And if you need to go quickly at the end of service, just stop by the next seven days desk. It's right between the glass doors before you exit the building. Our team's there. We would love to help you get started on your walk with God. This is a room full of people that have made that decision at some point in their life, and we want to celebrate with you. Can we just put our hands together and welcome people into God's family today? Awesome. Hey, the final thing that we want to do in service today is we just want to honor God by bringing our tithes and our offerings into his house. And this is something that we do out of obedience, but it's something that we do cheerfully and joyfully because we recognize that God loves a cheerful giver according to his word. And I want to take a moment and just say thank you very much for your faithfulness and your generosity when it comes to your giving. You know, we entrust God with the treasure that he has given us. Actually, he entrusts us with it to give back to him so that we are then stewards of what remains. When we come, when we come into God's house and we bring our tithes, we bring our offerings, like I said, we do it out of obedience, but we also do it out of worship. We recognize that God is our source. He's been so good to us, so we choose to give back to him, to honor him. He's been generous to us, so we choose to be generous as well. And I, again, just want to say thank you so much for that. We recognize that your faithful generosity, your faithful giving is making a way for people to be ministered to right here in the Temecula Valley through our partnerships across the nation and in missions efforts around the world. So thank you so, so much for giving. You can choose whichever option to give is most convenient for you. There are digital options on the screens. If you'd like to give in person a physical gift, there are giving stations right before you walk through this first set of exit doors. There's also one more out there at the kids' first-time check-in area. So take advantage of whatever is most convenient for you. Hey, listen, before you go, one last thing we want to tell you about, actually a couple things. If your children are registered for kids' camp, which starts tomorrow at 9 a.m., if you've already registered your kids, please stop by the Bridge Kids table in the foyer and pick up your registration packet because this will save you a whole lot of time at a long line tomorrow morning for people who will be registering at the door, all right? So stop by the Bridge Kids table, get your packet if you'd like to do that. As we talked about our giving a second ago, next month our Bridge Youth students, junior high and high school students, are going to go into youth camp. It's a week-long event. Youth camp is a little bit more expensive than even what Kids Day Camp is. Oftentimes we have students who can't afford to go or their parents cannot afford to send them. And it's a great opportunity for those of you who might want to invest in a student. You never know what God might do through that student that you invest in. So if you have it in your heart to plant a seed, you don't have to do this, but if you have it in your heart to plant a seed in a student's future, just stop by the Bridge Youth table out in the foyer and you can sponsor a student to go to summer camp this summer. And I know that for me, my life was changed because of the things that God did in my heart 
when I was at youth camp growing up, and we have the opportunity to bless some students with that same opportunity, all right? So thank you so much for doing that. Why don't you stand to your feet? I want to pray a prayer of blessing as we go today. Father, thank you for your people. Thank you for your church. Thank you that they are generous like you are, God, and I pray that you would bless them that you would be with them, that you would strengthen them and go before them in every area of their life, that we would be a light in the dark world that we are going into, and that we would shine the love of Jesus in all that we do. We love you. We give you this day back in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Sunday. We will see you for Dad's Day at the Bridge next Sunday.